Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would do a follow-up to an episode I did just a few days ago about the mandated reporting laws for therapists and counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists and all the other people, social workers, regarding our mandated reporting regarding child pornography. I did an episode a few days ago that uh, I went into a legal case, an actual legal case in which a therapist had learned that his client had downloaded child pornography and and reported it to the police and then was sued by the client for breaking confidentiality. And originally, I was just going to do the episode on the legal case and just review the ins and outs. But as I started to research for that episode and talked about the episode and then received a bunch of emails about that episode, I realized that the whole situation regarding child pornography mandated reporting is actually pretty complicated and not a lot of people know what to do because it's something that hasn't been uh, sort of tested in the courts or discussed uh, much in our profession yet, even though obviously child porn has been around for a long time, and the internet's been around for a long time, but our profession and the law, it just takes decades for things to progress. And so we're in a time right now where we there's not a lot of guidance. And and so I, and I got a bunch of emails from people that basically um, uh, indicated to me that they didn't really understand confidentiality laws very well, uh, lay people and counselors uh, uh, together. And also, which, you know, makes sense that lay people wouldn't understand. It's a, our profession has a pretty weird um, practice, meaning that it's not common in uh, among other professions or in our society that we keep things secret, even if they were uh, things like crimes and whatnot. So, uh, but I also w- was getting a lot of weird interpretations from people, a, a lot of misunderstandings. And and really, you know, I get it because, um, you know, none of us want people to get away with crimes, right? None of us want someone to, for, for example, download child pornography and, and tell someone about it and get away with that. You know, we want to protect the public. We definitely want to help uh, protect children. And so it goes against a lot of our moral fibers to say that we would not report it if someone told us that they had downloaded child pornography. And so I get why it's confusing, and I'll get into all that. Um, and it's um, a nuanced area, like I said, there, and there's not a lot of firm uh, guidance according to the law. So there's a general guideline that I'm going to lay out after having consulted with CPS and lawyers and other experts and whatnot. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. I'm really sorry about that. The episode a few days ago was also just for patrons of the podcast, so it feels terrible to have two episodes in a row that are only for patrons, but uh, it seems weird to have this one not be patron only since the other one was. Uh, Anyway, so... uh, Please become a patron of the podcast. That's the main thing. When you become a patron of the podcast, you get access to uh, you know hundreds of episodes in which we do deep dives into topics like this, 
but theory. And, you know, I just did a nine hour, eight hour episode on narcissistic personality disorder, which is just for patrons. So go to patreon.com, become a patron, do it now. All right. Welcome to the patrons own people. Thanks for joining me here. So the first thing that I will say here is that everything I'm about to say, it should be considered that this is me talking in August of 2018, that laws change over time, ethical codes change over time. Laws and ethics, ethical codes change very slowly over time. So if this is in, you know, four or five years from now, I'm I'm guessing that everything will be the same, but it, it might be different. And so just take all that into consideration. Um, all right. And also, uh, there are things that are different in different states. Uh, California, for example, which I'll get into, has a different set of laws than other states do, such as Washington, which is where I live. And you should... So just, you know, know that if I would, if this was psychology in San Francisco, then I would be talking in a different way because I'd be talking specifically about my practice and my obligations, uh, which are particular to California, as far as I can tell. Okay, so the first thing that I want to get into is I, I, I think I finally understood a aspect of our profession as it relates to the law and ethical codes. And I've been thinking about this for a long time. So I I feel like I finally refined this notion that there are different legal modes that we are in. And, And I'm using modes in quotation marks. It's not it's not really a mode. I don't really have a better word for it. But essentially, according to my uh, analysis, for us mental health people, we have four different situations that we're in, four different modes. I'm going to refer to them as modes. So that the first mode uh, when it comes to confidentiality and the law is that we're in a situation where we're obligated to not report. We are actually forbidden from breaking confidentiality given what we're hearing from our client. This is the vast majority of situations in mental health applies to this mode, is in this mode. Um, For example, if a client is talking about their day or a client is talking about their spouse or a client is talking about their work, we are obligated to not report any of that stuff, right? We can't break confidentiality. We can't call their workplace or the police or we can't tell our spouse. We can't call their boss at work and tell them what they said. We are completely forbidden from breaking confidentiality in those situations. Um, other situations that might not be as intuitive as that, which I hope that is intuitive, is that if a client says that they robbed a bank, we cannot report that. If a client said they are cheating on their spouse, we cannot report that. If a client says that they are embezzling money from their work or from the government, we cannot report that. If they work for the government, they're a politician and they're working with the Russians and they're committing treason against the United States of America, we cannot report that. If someone has HIV, we cannot report that. If someone killed somebody, someone comes into my office and says, earlier today, I murdered five people at work and no one knows that I did it. By law, I cannot report that. Now, there's a nuance there. If I believe they're going to do it again, 
then I and there'd be reason to believe that if they said that, then I I may actually report that, and I'll get more into that in a second. But if someone said, you know, twenty years ago I I killed my spouse, you can't report that. It's it's not uh, in a situation where you uh, are obligated to report, and you actually aren't protected from being sued if you do report that. So so that's another thing to say here is that. Uh, legal experts will always say is you can report things. There are things you can say, and you're not going to get in trouble unless someone takes issue with it. So if a client says to you, I killed someone 20 years ago, you report that and your client doesn't take issue with it, then in all likelihood, you're not going to get in trouble for it. But when, but if you do report that, the client can sue you uh, and you can be, you can have monetary damages, and you can have your license taken away potentially. Um, f- also, other kinds of things that are uh, you're forbidden from telling people are if your client says that they're abusing their dog, or their cats, or their fish. It's sometimes misunderstood that um, pets are mandated reporting uh, situations, and they're not. So if if a client says, "I I am." I am involved in a dog fighting ring and I have 20 dogs that I regularly abuse and put into a dog fighting ring. You are forbidden from reporting that. Now, I know to some of you that's upsetting and it's upsetting kind of to me. It's upset that the situations are upsetting and murder and uh, animal abuse, pet abuse, uh, embezzling money, uh, treason. These are all very upsetting, extremely bothersome things to our society, and it needs to stop. But if we as a profession are going to be able to help people with their problems, they have to be assured that we are not going to tell on them, that what they tell us is confidential. If I'm going to help someone who has HIV, for example, and they are worried about spreading it, they have to be assured that I am not going, and they're ashamed of having HIV, and they don't want people to know, then they have the right, according to the law and our ethical codes, to be able to tell me about being HIV positive without having to worry that I'm going to tell anyone about it. In fact, they are reassured that I am forbidden from telling anyone about it. I'm forbidden from calling uh, other people. I'm forbidden from talking with the press or, you know, my spouse or whatever. So they, sh- they get that reassurance, and we want them to have that. We want, in our society, we have deemed it important that certain people, certain professions are are forbidden and encouraged and given the right to have the privilege with clients who, uh, because we want them to see, we want people who are in situations like that to seek help. It's the same for medical professionals. It's the same for attorneys. We want people to get the help that they need so that, so that we can prevent them from doing this in the future. Right? So for example, if someone comes to me and says, Oh my God, I just have to tell you, I've been really struggling with this. Three years ago, I killed someone because I lost my temper and I never got caught for it, but I feel terrible about it. And I want to um, talk with you about how I can work on my anger and my PTSD or whatever so that I won't kill again. You know, 
that person is much more likely to come to me for help if they are reassured that I'm not going to tell anybody else and I'm not going to call the police. Whereas if I am going to, if they think I'm going to call the police or even if I'm, if they know I'm mandated to call the police, then they're never going to come to me, right? And that person who never got caught for murder but wants help will never get help and is therefore more likely to commit murder in the future. We have decided that it's important for uh, our profession and mental health to have uh, the privilege of confidentiality. Now, I'm using the word privilege, and that's actually a legal term, and there's some debate as to whether or not it applies to all the professions in mental health, but um, I am just going to move forward. Okay, so that's the first mode, is you are obligated to not report. You are forbidden to report, and this is the vast majority of, of disclosures from clients. That's the first mode. The second mode is obligated to report. You have to report. There's no question. You you have to break confidentiality to report, or you have to report it. And uh, if it if that means you have to break confidentiality, then you have to do it. So we all know, most of us know situations like this. If if you learn that a child is being abused or at risk of being abused and there's significant risk there, then you're mandated to report that, whether it's sexual abuse or physical abuse or other kinds of abuse. Also, if you learn that someone is going to kill someone or kill themselves and it seems imminent, then you have to, you have to report that. Um, often you try to get a uh, consent from the client to report those things, but if they don't provide that consent, it doesn't matter. You still have to report it, which means you have to break confidentiality. You have to go against your client's wishes and make that report anyway. Another common situation is, or I should say a commonly cited situation, is if a judge has ordered you to submit your records or to testify uh, on a case. Um, not if an attorney has subpoenaed you, but if a judge has ordered you and through a subpoena, then you uh, have to report, you have to testify, you have to provide that information. There are ways to mitigate the amount of disclosure in situations like that, but uh, I won't go into that in too much detail. So, so again, first legal mode is obligated to not report. You're forbidden to report. Vast majority of disclosures are in there. Uh, or, in, or, you know, provoke that mode. The second mode is when we are provoked to, we are provoked to report, we're obligated to report, either by statutory law, ethical code, or court precedent, we have determined and know that there's just no question, we have to report it. You, you know, you're, you have a, a you know, a 12-year-old client that says, my father beat me with a baseball bat last night. He hit me twice on the back of my head. In all states, I'm guessing that would be categorized as child abuse, and you have to report that. There's just no question. You don't, there's no debate. There, you just do it. Um, you ask your client, is it okay if I call CPS? And the client says, no, I don't want you to call CPS. And um, you know that the dad doesn't want you to report that, and yet you still have to report that. There's just no question. Okay, so that's the second mode. All right, the third mode. Now we're getting into some... So most of us are comfortable with those two modes. Most of us know what resides in those two modes. But the, the thing that I find that a lot of therapists don't necessarily know about is there are two other modes that we are in sometimes. 
And they are what I call the squishy modes, okay? The annoyingly squishy modes, okay? So the third mode that I will talk about here is the situation in which you may report, but you don't have to. You can report it, and no one can successfully sue you for it, but you don't have to report it. So in this situation, you have the freedom to decide for yourself whether or not you're going to make that report, whether or not you're going to break confidentiality. So for example, if a client commits a crime in your office or, you know, say, say a client uh, comes to your home and breaks into your house. Let's just say that. Let's say one of your clients uh, breaks into your house and, um, you know, threatens you, says, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to hurt you. And then somehow you get the client, you know, okay, let's talk. You get the client to go home. You don't have to report that, but you may. So in that situation, you may break, you know, the client, you ask the client, so is it okay if I call the police? And the client is like, no, I don't want you to call the police. Well, in that situation, you can call the police, but you don't have to. You could, you could let the client go and say, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to break confidentiality. It's your choice as a therapist. You don't have to report that crime, but you can. And there's no way that the client can sue you successfully for making that disclosure. Um, other more subtle examples might be if your client in office were to threaten you for something, you know, if, if you don't meet with me five times a week, I'm going to hurt you. You, you could report that, but you don't have to, but that's, you know, that's a, that's an assault for, uh, that's an, a, you know, a verbal assault, uh, crime potentially, and you can report that, but you don't have to. Um, so that's a situation in which, Someone is the, the the client is committed a crime against you, and since you are a victim of a crime, you have the right to report that. Right now, if the client says, "I last night broke into someone's house and I stole their computer and went home," you cannot report that. You can't report them having broken into someone else's home. Um, so, uh, but if they had broken into someone else's home and said they were going to kill someone else, then you can report that because that's indication that they're, that they might harm someone and you, uh, you actually might have, you might be obligated to report stuff like that. Um, so, which I'll get into more in the, in the fourth mode, which it's even more, it's also squishy, but if a client breaks into your house and steals your computer, like you have camera footage of your client breaking into your house stealing your computer and going home. You can report that because it's it's a crime against you and you have the right to report crimes that that you are the victim of. But if they break into someone else's house, you actually are forbidden from reporting that because you have a obligation to confidentiality. So I, I hope that makes sense. It's it's a it's who's the victim. If you're the victim, you have your right your victim's rights uh circumvent or are above the right of the client to confidentiality, if that makes sense. Okay, so other situations, for example, that are within this third mode where you may report, but you don't have to. Uh, you can, but you're, uh, and you're not going to be successfully sued for it, but you don't have to you know, break confidentiality, is when you confer with another healthcare provider, like the client's psychiatrist or physician or something. 
you can do that without the client's consent. It's in the HIPAA laws that you can consult with other healthcare providers that are treating the same patient, even if the client doesn't, doesn't consent to it. I don't recommend doing that, doing that, but there are times when that might be necessary. Like your client is um, erratic and out of control and you know the client is t- has a psychiatrist that is caring for the client. You ask the client, is it okay if I talk to your psychiatrist to talk about your care and so we can make sure we're coordinating care? And the client is like, no, you cannot talk to my psychiatrist. Well, in that situation, you might find that it's best to actually break confidentiality against the client's will, talk to the psychiatrist, and make sure that the best treatment is and safest treatment is happening for the client. So in that situation... HIPAA specifically states that you cannot be successfully sued for that. Also, you can consult with a colleague or supervisor about a case in the effort of enhancing your treatment, and you can't be successfully sued for that um, unless you did something that like was overtly harmful. But in general, most consultations, like it, I have a lot of supervisees and, and consultees, and they uh, primarily come to me to talk about their cases. And sometimes they have to break confidentiality in such a way that I, that the client might become identifiable to me. So, so a supervisee comes to me and they're like, I have this case. And I'm like, tell me about the case. And they're like, well, uh, you know, he's a famous rock star and he's married to this other person and blah, blah, blah. And through that consultation, I might be able to figure out who that person is. Well, in that moment, the uh, therapist is breaking confidentiality without consent from the client. So the, the client might have sort of passively consented to the fact that the client or that the uh, therapist is in supervision with me, but the client might not directly know uh, or at least viscerally know that the, um, that the therapist is going to talk with me about them. And, but we allow for that because we want clinicians to get supervision and consultation so that they can be the best uh, therapist that they can be. And so in those situations, it's okay. Now, in general, when we consult and receive supervision, we try to minimize the disclosures, which minimizes the chance that I'll, as me as a supervisor, will ever know who that person is talking about. But there are, you know, there's, there's opportunities for that. And um, so we allow, that's essentially the same as conferring, but it's a different situation. So so as a counselor, you may break confidentiality against the client's will to receive consultation or supervision um, with, with as minimal disclosure to the supervisor as possible uh, without being successfully sued. Uh, you, can't, you can't get sued for that um, if you follow certain guidelines. Successfully sued. You can get sued. Anyone can file a lawsuit if they want to, but it's whether or not a, a court will uphold it. Um, another situation is you can break confidentiality if you think a client is at risk of harming the public somehow or or harming themselves somehow. So this is that situation where I was talking about in terms of our duty to protect the public. So if say if a client said uh, you know that they are drinking all the time and they drink every day and they drink heavily, you know they drink two fifths of vodka every day, and you know that the client is driving every day. They're driving to work. They're driving their kids to school. You could, if you wanted to, I don't recommend it really, but you could get away with breaking cup. You could ask. So you ask the client, um, I'm really concerned about you driving drunk all the time. And I, 
I'm worried about you hurting yourself or other people. And the client's like, yeah, I get it. And then you as a therapist, you say, so I, I just feel like we should, we should either get a way to get you to stop drinking or to stop driving. So you don't do that. And the client's like, well, I don't know. It, it's hard for me to quit drinking. And it, uh, you know, I need to get to work and I need to drive my kids to school and stuff. And then you say, well, um, I, I'm, I'm now, I'm even more concerned because, um, we don't have a solution to this. And so I, I feel like I have to call the authorities or something and, and tr to, to try to get you to stop this because I, I'm really worried you're going to hurt yourself or other people. And the client is like, no, 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 you know, you, I don't want you to call anybody. You can't call anybody. And then you say, well, I'm sorry. I think I have to call child protective services at the very least because, you're you're putting your kids at danger in danger, and the client is like, "How dare you? Um, I'm never coming back here again. Uh, if you make that report, I will sue you." In that situation, uh, you might, after consult consulting with other people, you might determine that it's worth it. That it, it's it, you know, you, it's worth destroying your relationship with that client because you are trying to save the life of a child. Um, and you break confidentiality, you call CPS, you make the report, uh, the client hates you and never comes back to you and files a lawsuit against you. Um, in, in those situations, it's, it, there's, it, it, you're never for sure in these kinds of situations, but in general, from the cases I've read, those cases tend to be, uh, in favor of the counselor because, we have a duty to protect the public and we also have a duty to report child abuse. And even though we haven't heard of any direct abuse to the children in, a, in essence, the child's welfare is in danger and, and the courts generally uphold those kinds of behaviors and actions when it's in a gray zone for a counselor. And, and it's definitely in that gray zone. So, so in that situation, you don't have to report it. Like it's not, it, it's so in the gray zone, it's not a mandated child CPS reporting situation, in my opinion. Uh, you could probably get other opinions, but I, I would have a hard time imagining a situation in which you had an alcoholic client who was a parent and you didn't report it. And I can't imagine a situation in which you would get in trouble for that, like losing your license or something or getting sued successfully for that. But that we're starting to get into the fourth mode in, in a little bit, which I'll get into more later. So, you know, there's some elements of fourth mode in this. But anyway, so you could break confidentiality in that situation uh, as long as you felt it was justified. And it would be unlikely that a court would uphold a... Um, a case against you. Also, another situation where you could break confidentiality, but you don't have to, is you have a psychotic client and uh, a long time ago they made threats. Like 10 years ago, they had a psychotic episode and they made threats to, about hurting other people. And then 10 years later, they have another psychotic episode and they're not making threats. There's, there's no current threats. But you think that given the fact that they are psychotic now um, and in the past when they were psychotic, they, they had violent homicidal or violent ideation, you might determine there's risk of them developing that now and acting on it. 
And in that situation, you don't have to report it because there's no in, there's no clear indication of actual risk of harm of other people. There's just a what you believe to be you're you're making a clinical judgment call that there's there's a chance that that there's a risk there. And in that situation like that, um, you know, it's hard to know for sure how a court would rule, but. But these are the kinds of situations where, in general, you can report it, you don't have to, and in general, you're not going to be successfully sued for a disclosure like that because you're you're trying to protect the public and you have reasonable reason to to think that the client has risen above a certain threshold of threat that allows you to break confidentiality in a situation like that. Okay, well, so this is a good transition into the fourth mode because we're already kind of talking about fourth mode stuff here. So again, just to review, mode one is you're obligated not to report. You're forbidden from reporting. Mode two is you're obligated to report. This is when you're mandated to report or you have a duty to protect. The third mode is a mode in which you are allowed to report. You may report if you want to, but you aren't going to get in trouble if you don't report and you're not going to get in trouble if you do report and you can't be successfully sued if you report. Um, This is a squishy area and it's hard to know when you're in this mode. You need to consult to find out if you're in this mode because you might mistakenly think you're in mode three when you're really in mode one, two or four. Anyway, so the fourth mode is where I like to call it you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. But you're potentially damned if you do and you're potentially damned if you don't. This is, this is a mode in which we as clinicians, we can get in trouble for reporting and for not reporting at, at the same time. So, so you and no one knows the right path. So a, a common, an example I remember hearing, and I've talked about in the podcast before, an example I remember hearing when I was in graduate school 23 years ago was the ethics professor said, so imagine you have a 17-year-old girl client, and she discloses to you that she is using cocaine or heroin or something, and she's abusing it. Uh, what do you do? Well, all of us, having learned the laws and ethics, said, well, we don't report that because it's, it's not child abuse. It's not, you know, she's, she's not disclosing abuse to a child. She's not abusing any children or a dependent adult. She's not disclosing that she is going to kill someone else or kill herself. And the a court of law has not ordered us to disclose this. So of course we don't when you know if someone smoked marijuana we don't report that if someone drank alcohol we don't report that if someone uses cocaine we don't report that if someone uses heroin we don't report that right and then the professor let us you know kind of air that out and we felt pretty good about it and then the professor said well yes and it's possible that if you don't report it and let's say the kid uses cocaine or heroin overdoses and dies and the parents find out that you knew that this 17-year-old girl was using substances. It's possible for you to be successfully sued in court by the parents for not telling them that... So so in this situation, the parents didn't know the kid was using substances or didn't know the extent or something. And the kid 
overdoses, dies, the parents could sue you successfully for not having told them. And all of us were like, what? That doesn't make any sense. So, so we're supposed to, so we're supposed to report it to the parents. Is that what you're saying? And, and then the professor said, well, if you tell the parents prior to the child dying, if you, if you tell the parents, the kid could sue you successfully for having broken, having broken their confidentiality. And now our heads are spinning. We're like, so if we tell the parents, the kid can, can successfully sue us for breaking confidentiality. But if we don't report it and, a, and harm happens to the kid because of the drug use, the parents could successfully sue us for not having told the parents. And this was extremely frustrating and, and disconcerting to me at the time. And over time, I have tried to figure out what the heck is happening in our society and in our profession that allows for this to happen. You know, it's like you... Um, you're in a, you're driving in a car and you approach a, a stop sign and the law states that if you don't stop you know fully you could get you could get a ticket or if you do stop fully you could also get a ticket <laughs> it, it it's it's crazy you know we we like to think about we i don't know if, about you, but for me, I like to know what the landscape is so I don't make a mistake. I don't want to be sued. I don't want to lose my license. I don't want to be humiliated in a court of law for having done something wrong. That's, that's something that, I don't know, I just prefer to avoid. And uh, therefore, uh, please tell me what the rules are so I can follow them. I don't, I don't mind the rules. I just need to know what the rules are. And in this situation, from, from what uh, court rulings and laws and everything and experts will tell us is there is no law. You, there, there's a law that goes in opposite directions for the same situation. So in these situations, essentially there's, there's no clear court precedent and there's no clear statute that, that uh, positively adjudicates or positively guides us to, to in what to do. For example, with the stop sign, there's, there's a very clear law. You, I'm sure it's, you know, a paragraph or something. You have to stop before the line. You have to fully stop and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so in other states, and I, I think, I think Seattle might be similar to this. You can do a rolling stop if, you know, if you do a safe rolling stop anyway. So, so there's a very clear law around this sort of thing. Um, and there's a clear law about when we hear about child abuse, you report it. There, there's just no question about it. But, when it. but there's a lot of situations where you can, you can get in trouble for both. And it's very frustrating. It's very scary. So let me give you some examples. So for example, let's say, so getting to the child pornography situation, in Washington State, and I think in a lot of states outside of California, that's what this situation is, is when you, so in the case, the court case I talked about uh, a few days ago was a, a counselor was working in a residential facility and that he had a client who had taken his roommate's, his laptop computer and downloaded uh, child pornography, looked at child pornography while on his roommate's laptop. The roommate looks at his computer later and discovers, oh, 
someone's been using my computer to, to look at child pornography. Um, this is some sort of sick version of like uh, the three bears story. What's that story? My porridge is too hot. My porridge is too cold. My porridge has child pornography in it. You know, <laughs> anyway. Um, so the, so that was situation. And the roommate comes to the counselor and says, this other, you know, kid in our residential program, this other 19 year old has downloaded child porn on, on my computer and I don't want to get in trouble for it. So in this situation, I would think that the counselor cannot report that the counselor can talk to the kid about it and say, you can't do that or to impose rules and say, you are forbidden from using computers anymore, or you can't, you, you are grounded for a month or something like that. But, but surely we can't report it in the same. And I know that some of you out there are like, what do you mean you can't report it? Of course you can report it. You have to report it. But again, I just want to say it's similar to if that client said, I smoked marijuana and you're in a state that it's not legal, right? You're in Alabama, which I'm guessing it's not legal to, for recreational marijuana use. And the client says, I smoked marijuana or I have marijuana, you know, on me. Uh, we, we can't report that. That's not, you're, we're forbidden from reporting that. It's a crime that they have marijuana or in that area or they're smoking marijuana, but that doesn't matter. We don't, we don't report crimes. So the, the kid says, you know, I, or the kid admits to, yes, I, you know, I looked at child porn yesterday. That's a crime and it's terrible and it's scary and it's awful. And it's against the rules of the residential program, but it's a, it's, it, it, there's not, there's no law that says you are mandated to report that. And there's also no law that says you're allowed to report it uh, in the same way that you're, uh, there's no law that says you're allowed to report pot use or robbing a bank or something. Well, in this case, though, that I read, uh, I, I, it might have been in California. I'm not sure. Um, I'm actually having a lawyer look into this specific case, try to find it. But anyway, um, it was found that the so so then so then so the counselor reports it to the police. The police investigate. They, uh, the 19-year-old was on probation, and or on parole actually, and so the 19-year-old had a consequence of going to jail for 30 days. And the story was somehow leaked to the press, and there was a news story about it, and he was publicly humiliated for it. And then a couple years later, he turned around and sued the counselor for breaking his confidentiality. And as I was reading this, I was like, huh. I wonder, I'm pretty sure I know where this is going. I'm pretty sure the this case is going to be successful in suing the counselor because the counselor broke confidentiality, but it wasn't. The court actually up, upheld or, you know, ruled in favor of the counselor saying that the counselor did have legal uh, precedent or some kind of mandate to make or allowance to make that report. And I, and I thought, huh, that's, that's, that's weird to me, you know? And so, so I went on a journey to, to figure out, uh, which, you know, why, which I'll get into in a second. But anyway, so I found out through all my research that that situation in a lot of cases is actually in this fourth mode where if you don't report it, you can get in trouble. Uh, you could get in trouble because say the client goes out and, uh, abuses a child and then, 
those the parents of the child find find out that you knew about the child pornography and you didn't report it and so the the parents could say you had reason to believe that this client was at risk of harming people and you didn't make a report and therefore you're liable for negligence and the but you could also break confidentiality and make that report to, to the police and the client could potentially successfully sue you now for breaking confidentiality. Now, in some states like California, that's not the case. And apparently in some states, uh, it's not the case because of uh, of other elements. But but anyway, uh, let me uh, talk about some other things before I get to that. Um, another situation in, in this fourth mode where you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, potentially damned if you do, potentially damned if you don't, is you learn you, that your 17-year-old female client took a picture of her breasts and sent that picture to her 17-year-old boyfriend. So these are two minors. So you have the production of child pornography by the girl and the distribution of child pornography by the girl and potentially uh, holding on to child pornography by the boy. Uh, you, if your client tells you this, and I look, and some people have been emailing me about this because there are some specific guidelines that um, uh, uh, professional organizations are starting to look into situations like this and and provide guidance around it. But their guidance is basically saying you're in this fourth mode, in that you you could potentially get in trouble by the law if you do not report that because it is potentially it could be seen as child abuse. You have a 17-year-old essentially setting themselves up to be abused uh, and abusing themselves or abusing a law that has to do with with child welfare or something. And so uh, you could get in trouble for not having reported that. You could be sued or you could lose your license. But you could also be sued and lose your license if you did report it because it's breaking confidentiality, right? Now, I know some of you out there are have already told me, no, 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 you have to report that. That's child abuse. And what I'm telling you is from my research, yes and no. We do not know that for sure. Uh, it's possible that Every, if you, it's possible that from this day forth, if all of us counselors in the United States decided to report all incidents of child pornography, it's possible that the courts would rule in favor of us. Um, it's so so you we could so those who err on the side of like no 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 report it all the time. It's possible that you're you're correct, but there's no way to know that. And given the way that the law and different uh, rulings have happened around similar issues they tend to go either direction, depending on the judge, depending on the way it's argued, depending on some mitigating circumstances. And there's no clear guidelines. And, and legal experts recognize this, that when it comes to child pornography or the uh, or a minor taking a picture of themselves and sending it to someone else, that uh, it's unclear. Now, if it's coerced, like you have a 25-year-old who is pressuring a 13-year-old to send him pictures of herself naked, then we have a situation in which there's coercion. Then we're absolutely talking about child abuse. But if we're talking about, um, or in the child pornography situation, if a mother takes a picture of her, you know, seven-year-old 
children having sex with each other, <laughs> then obviously that's reportable, right? Because it's, you know, it's directly involving the person uh, who is looking at the child pornography as, as causing harm to children. But if someone just looks at a child pornography picture on the internet and they're not connected to that child in any way, particularly if the, if the picture is not, um, uh, a, an, an instance of abuse of a child, you know, it's just like, um, someone got a hold of someone's, uh, family photos and there happens to be a naked picture of a kid in there or something, you know, it's anyway. So I know that this is a very upsetting topic and for some of you, I'm guessing this is triggering. So if you need to pause and take a breath, um, I, want to be able to talk about this because I think it's important to, and I think it's avoided for a lot of reasons in our society. And at the same time, uh, I want everyone to take a deep breath and realize that we're all safe. This is just talking. This is, um, it's upsetting to know that this stuff happens. It's upsetting to think about um, having to deal with it ourselves or having dealt with it. So deep breath. Okay. Um, also other situations where it's unclear what to do and, and you might get sued either direction is in some states you, there are laws that say that it's illegal for minors, teenagers to engage in oral sex or anal sex. And so there are situations where you as a therapist might be obligated to report if a client a, tells you that a teenager, particularly younger than that, right? But, you know, say you have a 17-year-old client who tells you that she had oral sex with her partner the other night. There's a, the way that the laws work, you might be obligated to report that. And you might get in trouble if you don't. And if you do, you could also get in trouble by the client. <laughs> so um, now, the, what the guidelines will say is uh, you probably don't have to report that. <laughs> Uh, in the same way that you probably don't have to report when a 17-year-old girl sends pictures of her breasts willingly to her boyfriend. Uh, you probably don't have to report that. And general guidelines say, don't bother. But the way that the law works is that it's, it's unclear. And if a someone takes up issue with you not reporting it, and you end up in court, there's a chance that a judge could decide that you were um, negligent or you acted um, wrongly. And there's no way to know what the answer to that is. And take it from me, man, judges and courts are, they act very strangely sometimes. You just really have no idea how they're going to react. And so uh, we, we I used to think of courts and judges as these very stable things, you know, very by the book and very uh, level-headed and rational and consistent. And what I have learned by going to court many times is it's almost the direct opposite of that. Every court is different. Every judge is different, particularly juries are different. Every uh, situation is discriminated against. I mean, you have uh, a black plaintiff versus a white plaintiff. You're going to get different things. An older plaintiff versus, versus a younger one, you know, courts will just rule just it, it. We're trying to approximate a rational system, but we're humans and every situation is slightly different, if not severely different. And so 
it's just hard to know. Okay. Um, okay. So those are the four modes that I have, that I have figured out is that you have the, op, the, the main mode that we're usually in is when you're forbidden to break confidentiality. The second mode is when you're obligated to break confidentiality if necessary. The third mode is you can break confidentiality and report it, but you don't have to. And, and if you do and the client gets upset, they can't viably sue you. And the fourth situation is you're, you're potentially in trouble if you break confidentiality and you're potentially in trouble if you don't break confidentiality at the same time. Those two things are true. Okay, so let's go into child pornography in more detail here. So again, at first, when I looked at this, I figured, oh, you're, we're obligated not to report that. You know, it's, it's, a, um, it's like robbing a bank. Someone told, told me that they robbed a bank. I don't report that. Someone told me they looked at child porn. I don't look at that. I mean, I don't, I don't um, report that because that's, not, um, that's, that's a crime, and, but it doesn't, it doesn't fit into the child abuse versus um, duty to warn and protect and, and court order. You know, it's not any of those things. So, um, so what am I supposed to do? Um, then I read that brief, like I said, a few days ago, and I, and I discovered that, oh, in some situations, uh, you are allowed to make that report. There was nothing in the, in the brief that said that the counselor had to make that report, but it, but it definitely said it was okay. So it could have been in that third mode where it's like, you may make that report, but you don't have to, and you can't get sued if you do make that report. So I was really confused, and so I did some research, and I read a bunch of, an article, a bunch of articles from California because California is recently in statutory law and in court law. They have been trying to figure out the answer to this question. So originally in California, it was in that either in, either in the obligated not to report or in the maybe report, and then the the legislature in California, from what I understand, they passed a law that mandated that therapists report it. So this was, I think, 2015 or something. And so the therapists in California freaked out. They're like, wait a second. So if clients come to us and tell us that they have downloaded child porn, we have to report that. That doesn't seem like a good idea because clients won't come forward to get help if they think that we're just going to report them as criminals. So some therapists actually fought back to get it overturned. They, they wanted to say, look, you know, that law, that doesn't make any sense. And, or court precedent or something. I, I don't know if it was law or statute or court precedent, but anyway. And then in 2017, I believed the upper courts affirmed that the law um, is that it stands and that it's sound and that, uh, and therefore, in California, ca- mental health people are mandated to report when they learn that child pornography has been viewed by somebody. Uh, but that's just in California. So so I was like, huh, well, that's interesting. So uh, it's interesting to see that whole thing play out in that state. But what about my state? What about Washington? What about all the other states? You know. Now, I, I should say that uh, there's a nuance to this and that the the law in different states around child abuse is is slightly different depending on the state. And so in some states, they'll say, this is illegal for child abuse, and other states are like, this other nuance is illegal. And 
And so from what I understand, there are some stat- state laws that explicitly state that child pornography is included in the in the child abuse realm and therefore might invoke our mandated reporting responsibilities. Um, so, so there's that nuance. But it's unclear as to whether or not just someone telling us that they've looked at child porn, it constitutes that kind of child abuse. Um, now, I will say that uh, child pornography is 99.999% of the time inherently abusive to children, right? Uh, and potentially encourages the abuse of children. I don't know. But anyway, um, so I'm not saying that child porn is some sort of innocent thing. It's not. It is a it is really a nasty, horrible thing um, that uh, is, you know, I, I mean, I, I just have to tell you, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but bears repeating. In Japan, uh, child pornography is illegal and child abuse is illegal. It's not legal in Japan, just like in the United States. But they have different ways of dealing with certain things. And since Japan deals with things in a, like with a lot of shame, the, the, it results in some weird things happening. For example, uh, and I think things have changed, but uh, this was 10 years ago. I'm walking around Tokyo and I see there's just all these uh, shops and, you know, these, uh, and because there's so, there's so little room in Tokyo, they build uh, shops on top of shops, you know? And so there was this five-story building kind of um, in a smaller part of Tokyo. And there were there was a shop on each floor. I don't know why I'm telling you this detail, but I just remember it. And I just thought, well, that's interesting. And it was a tiny, it was like as tiny as like a small 7-Eleven, the building, but it was five stories high, if that makes any sense. So in fact, I would say it was as small as like an apartment, just one apartment. Each Each floor was probably... I don't know, like 250 square feet or something. Anyway, so so you, you walked in the door and there's one shop and then you walked up the stairs to another shop. Well, I walked up to the third floor or fourth floor and there was a shop there and I couldn't really figure out what it was at first. I was walking around the store and it looked like a bookstore or like a DVD store, like a book slash DVD store. And it was real humble and, you know, someone's behind the cash register and it was kind of quiet in there and they had some some TVs displaying like some of the DVDs that they were selling these little like promo DVDs. And I'm walking around and I'm looking at the stuff and I'm like, I don't really get like, what is like, it looks like um, a lot of teeny, uh, like teen magazine stuff, you know, like Vogue for kids or something. And I'm like, Oh, this is, this is kind of what, what is this store? And then I get around this one corner and I see this video and the video is a kid, like a five-year-old kid playing in a pool, like a, like, it looks like a home video. It doesn't look like a, like an official, it just looks like someone grabbed a VHS camera and was filming this kid playing in a pool. And it, and the kid, someone's telling the kid to do certain things like, okay, splash around and be happy and run around the yard. And the kid is in a, you know, a, a bathing suit of some kind. And I'm watching this video and I'm thinking, is this some sort of like news story or something like this looks like it looks boring. Like who wants to watch a five-year-old run around and, you know, in a, 
in on the front lawn and roll around and jump into a pool and jump out of a pool. I'm like, this is like so boring. And then all of a sudden it hit me. Oh my God, this is child, this, this is child pornography. This is what people will buy so they can, you know, get off on it. And there wasn't any nudity. It was just the kid was in a bathing suit, you know, running around. And then all of a sudden I, I start looking at everything in the store and I realize the entire store is selling child pornography. And each section that I was in, in this tiny little store, was different age groups. Different age groups. So I was in like the the kindergarten corner. And, you know, like three feet down was like the eight-year-old zone. And a few feet down from that was like the 10-year-old zone. And then up from that was like the 15-year-old zone. And I was... It was shocking. I mean, it, it was like so many different terrors happening at the same time because I'd never seen child porn before. I'd, it, I'd, you know, I, I knew it existed. I'd heard about it, I guess, but I'd never seen it before. And to be there, and then suddenly I'm seeing everything for what it was. And, you know, I think some of it was more explicit than others. I think, and if I remember right, there was nothing explicit that you could see, like everything was wrapped in plastic. Surely there must have been like explicit things like between the pages of some of these magazines or something. I don't know. But, or some of the DVDs, I don't know. But everything they had on display just looked like kids having fun, if that makes any sense. Or, you know, young models in uh, skimpy clothing, you know. And, uh, man, shocking. And so I walk outside and I look up at this, it has a, there's a sign to the store and there's this, um, there's this schoolgirl in a, in that classic Tokyo schoolgirl outfit with the plaid skirt and the, you know, the white socks and, and this, the, so the store sign has one of those girls and she's sort of looking cute and, you know, um, that way that Japanese people will graphically design young girls uh, and, uh, and, but those sorts of images are everywhere in, in Japan, anime, uh, the pachinko stores, uh, that, that, that over-sexualization of, of young girls in, and, and boys for that matter in Japan is totally just par for the course. Some, someone could be selling like golf clubs and have like an image like that in Japan. So it's just like totally normal. Uh, but the store's name was Imoya which means potato store, <laughs> Imoya, potato store. It's like potato. That must be like code for child porn. Meanwhile, you have in America like these stupid conspiracies about Pizzagate where um, if you just look at that whole thing, it's just, <laughs> I mean, uh, anyway. So why did I go into that? Anyway, I was just talking about child pornography. Um yeah, it's depressing. It's sad. It's horrible. It needs to stop. We need to wake up and actually face this head on and actually, um, one, stop it, to help people who consume it with their problems. We need to bring them out into the light. You know, someone has a panic attack uh, in general that they're not terrified of going to a therapist and talking about their panic attack. Uh, but someone is attracted to children sexually, and of course, they're terrified of telling anyone about it. And making it 
autumn, a mandated reporting thing, you know, is going to harm the efforts for us to actually reach out to these people so that we can help them and prevent them from doing these kinds of behaviors. So that California law, I'm not in favor of it at all. Um, okay. Uh, but I see the wisdom in it. And, you know, if I was in California, I'd follow it anyway. So, so that was, so again, that, uh, I looked into the California law and then I looked on different, uh, different states have different laws about child abuse that include child pornography in it. And then I called CPS, you just called child protective services and in, in my County and asked them about what to do. And a nice fellow today said, immediately, it's like, oh, yeah, you report that. You, oh, if, you know, if a client tells you that they viewed child pornography, you report that. You do that right away. And I was like, oh, so what's the wisdom? You know, why are you, why are you so sure about that? And he kind of explained a little bit. And what I would paraphrase it as is that CPS thinks that someone who looks at child porn is at risk of actually abusing a child. So if someone says, you know, someone tells me, I, I look at child porn sometimes, then that's indication that they are attracted to children, which is indication that they might sexually abuse a child, which means that I need to report that to CPS so that CPS can oversee that individual and, and prevent them from harming other, other people. But that seems pretty iffy to me, you know, because it, what, what if, what, if, what if a, someone said, you know what, sometimes I, you know, I occasionally fantasize about having sex or, I don't know, making out with a minor, a 16 year old person, um, or something like that. It might, Am I mandated to report people who have fantasies about about uh, sexual contact with uh, a sixteen year old? Is that it? Doesn't make it, it just seems a little interesting to me. And the thing about CPS is that they're not the best people to consult with. They're definitely they're definitely worth consulting with. But the thing is, is Child Protective Services is a government agency that does not care about my license or uh, me being sued and losing my house, you know, they, CPS doesn't care about me being sued. They, they want the information, which is great. They, you know, they have a general policy of uh, when in doubt, report it. Uh, but they don't necessarily consider and, or should they even care about whether or not I'm going to get in trouble if I do report it, you know? So, um, so that's what CPS said. It's like, oh, definitely report it in, because it's an indication of risk that the individual is going to harm children. Uh, not that what they, what CPS said was it's not actually an indication of child abuse, unless uh, the, the person reporting uh, about the child pornography took the photos themselves. Right. But if the person is just viewing child pornography, CPS said that in and of itself is not child abuse. I just, so I just want to make that clear is the, the person was the person CPS said, well, it's not it, it, it looking at child porn isn't considered child abuse um, in, you know, it's, it's not considered the person viewing the porn isn't considered to have abused a child. Right. But it's an indication of risk and therefore worthy of reporting. OK, so then I called a lawyer and asked them what they thought, uh, someone who specializes in mental health. And what the lawyer said, what she said was, uh, if a counselor is 
sued for reporting, the courts would probably rule in favor of the counselor. So what she was saying was, um, say you break confidentiality and there's no clear uh, allowance to do that, right? Some, you know, if you're in a state other than California and your client tells you, I look at child pornography or my roommate looks at child pornography or something. And you're on the fence. You don't really know what to do. You make that report and the, the client sues you for breaking confidentiality because there, there's nothing in the law that says you're specifically allowed to make that report, right? Well, what my lawyer friend said was that um, if it ended up in the court, judges usually rule in favor of child protection in situations of gray zone. And since this is a gray zone, um, judges will likely allow you to do that. So it looks like in a lot of situations, uh, child pornography is within mode three, which is you may report it, but you don't have to, and you're not going to get sued if you do report it. Um, so that, so the, my lawyer person, that's basically what they said. So, um, uh, unless you're in California, right? So again, what this lawyer person told me was, uh, you know, someone, someone tells you that they've been looking at child pornography. Uh, you are not in mode two, which is absolutely obligated to report. It does not appear unless you're in California that you are obligated to report that. So you don't have to report that as in reports of child abuse. Um, it seems as though you're in, and you're, and it doesn't appear that you're in mode four, but you might be in that someone can successfully sue you for making that report. What it appears to be, but there's not a lot of evidence because we don't have a lot of statutes to guide us and we don't have enough court precedent to guide us. But it seems as though you may re report it if you want to, but you don't have to. And if, and if, so if you don't report it, you're not going to get in trouble and if you do report it, you're not going to get in trouble. So that that appears to be where we're at. Um, but you could be in mode four where you could get sued either direction. So we just don't know. All right. So what are my final suggestions here? Uh, one is to get to know your state laws because every state's different. Also, when this comes up, consult. Consult with experts. That That's always what I rely on myself. And that's always what I tell other people. This is in a gray zone. Therefore, when something happens, you, you really, there's no way for you as an individual to know what to do. You should consult. You should, you know, with, with experts, with people who know, and, uh, one, because, uh, you should, Two, because it's always good to do that. It protects yourself when you do consult, even if you take the wrong action. And also, every situation is different. It's so interesting to go over different legal situations. You know, the, every time I, f I feel like, okay, I feel like I've answered all the ethical and legal questions that I've ever been asked as a supervisor and instructor. And then someone will ask a question. I'll be like, oh, my God, I've never thought about that. Like, wait a second. What is the law about that? Like... I have a supervisee who uh, takes their child to daycare and their client also takes their kid to the same daycare. 
And it's an interesting situation uh, because and the 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 therapist's client is quite a bit younger than than the clients. Anyway, there's there's some details in there I won't go into, but the point is is that there it's a sticky situation. Um, you know, in other situations, I would just say, well, just go to a different daycare. But for some for some parents, that's not possible. One, two, the other daycare might have other kids that that are clients. You know, so it it, it was a really interesting situation that I had to really walk through very carefully. And and there's no real easy answer to it. There's no real solid answer to it. But anyway, so consult. Uh, number three is find a way to get someone else to make the report. This is actually something that the lawyer told, uh, suggested to me was, so in that case that I talked about a few days ago, the counselor hears from the roommate that his client had downloaded porn, right? So, um, and so one of the ways around the, um, you know, the risk of being sued for breaking confidentiality is you tell the roommate, uh, you make the report and I'll watch you and I'll document that you made the report. But you're the one who saw the child porn. It was your laptop computer. I want you to make the report and you're free to do that. And that will cover your ass because you have, you know, made the report and you won't get in trouble for it. And that will save me from having to make the report myself, which saves me from the risk of being sued by the client for breaking confidentiality. Uh, number four, if you do make a report to CPS or police, make sure you only disclose the necessary information and not anything more. Number five, uh, we might want to tell our clients that we have to report this or you know, we may have to report it. So um, it's actually one of those rare situations where we might have to actually put it in writing in our disclosure statement. Plus, it might help us to remind ourselves that um, what the guideline is around that to have. I, I use my disclosure statement partially as a reminder to myself what I'm supposed to do <laughs> because there's so I don't run into issues of confidentiality very often. Uh, and so, I mean, the the biggies, you know, like reports of child abuse and reports that someone's going to kill someone or something. It doesn't happen to me very often. And so... Uh, Sometimes it's helpful for me to just go to my disclosure statement to remind me what my laws are. And so um, so not only is it good for us, but it's also good to disclose to our clients, right? Um, I personally think if you're in California, you should be telling your clients that you're a mandated child pornography reporter because um, I imagine that some people don't know that. Uh, number six is we need to pass federal laws that guide us for this, not state by state. We need... It's crazy that we have... 50 different set of, of laws governing mental health people. It's, it's, an, it's nuts. And that has to change. We, we need to uh, uh, create a uniform system so that we can train uniformly. When I talk about this, it's like I have to have this huge caveat. It's like, well, depending on what state you live in, I don't know. And that's not a good system. It creates confusion. It creates uh, efforts to understand, you know, basically we need 50 different training systems instead of one training system. So, and if you move into another state, it, you have to, you have to know a whole other system. It's, it's not, it's not rational. And why would they be different in different states? It, they, they should be the same, right? Um, 
So what we need to do as a profession is we need to get together, not, not just marriage and family therapy. I'm, I'm talking like all the professions, psychology, psychiatry, counseling, social work. We all need to get together and decide what our guidelines are and then make that into law federally or uniformly across all states. And, and then we can know what to do and not be in a situation where we're sued if we do and sued if we don't. It just, that doesn't make a lot of sense. The other thing is, is we need to pass these laws so that courts aren't reactionary to public terror. I think there, so there was a time in the past when HIV was the boogeyman and, you know, everyone was terrified of HIV. I mean, I remember a time when, you know, around 1990-ish, 1985 to 1995 time, when people were afraid to go to the bathroom in a public bathroom because they were afraid they were going to get HIV. People were afraid to, uh, you know, get a vaccine, for example, because they were afraid they were going to get HIV. People were afraid to shake people's hands just because they thought, well, what if that person has HIV? I mean, it, it was... It was a, a really ridiculously scary time, and most people did not understand. It took a while for us to understand the, the method of, um, of being infected and that toilet seats and shaking hands are not ways you're going to get infected. But, but even when we did figure that out and tried to tell everyone, um, or scientists tried to tell everyone, uh, it took um, took many years for people to kind of understand that. So there's a zone where we knew better, and yet m- most of us were freaking out about it. And so at that time, there was a, an idea amongst mental health people that, and I forget the exact details, but I remember when I was first starting out as a therapist in the late 90s, it was still this way. They would say, like, we are mandated to report if someone has HIV. Imagine that that there was this notion, whether or not it was legal or not, but it was, I think there were court cases in which this was upheld, which is that, you know, a client comes to me and says, by the way, I'm HIV positive. I am obligated to turn around and report them to, uh, I don't know, some organization that monitors this sort of thing. I don't know, Uh, the police or uh, medical systems or I don't know. But there was... This um, and there's a whole history around this, around all of this in general that I'm I, I'm ignorant of, but and I could be wrong about some of these details. But I, I remember being told that uh, if someone has HIV, you have to report it, and that might still even be true is the thing. But no one follows that is the thing. Uh, so, and the reason why there was this difference in our laws and practices and considerations around confidentiality regarding HIV was because of the way society was freaking out about it. And, and I think right now we're in a situation where society is freaking out about child pornography and where the pendulum is swinging too far to one side regarding breaking confidentiality. It's like, there's this notion out there that it's like, Child pornography is one of the worst things on the planet. And I'm not saying it's a good thing, but it's it's like, you know, yeah, okay, fine, therapy is confidential, but surely child pornography trumps that 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 privilege, right? And I'm and I I can't see how it differs from robbing a bank or 
Um, you know, of course, child pornography, like I said, in and of itself is inherently abusive uh, or often is inherently abusive. But as the CPS person said, someone, someone going to a website on the dark web and looking at child pornography is not abusive in and of itself. That act of looking at a picture that was previously taken is not an act of child abuse because the child might may or may not even be alive anymore, you know, uh, sadly, I guess. But um, the act of taking a, a, a child pornography picture is abusive to the child. Absolutely. So, so the photographer or the distrib- you know, the distributor of it is propagating abuse. But if someone views it uh, um, on a website, then um, you know it's debatable as to you could say they're indirectly contributing to the child abuse, right? Because they are encouraging the um, production and distribution of those images, which are inherently abusive to children. Anyway. My point is, is that um, we need to pass laws. Now, if the feds, if we as a, if, if we as a uh, profession, the various professions, if we decide that child pornography is, is supposed to be mandated reported, um, I don't mind. I, I, I probably will never come across that situation. And when I did, you know, I'd probably be okay with making the report, particularly if I was mandated by law. Um, so I'm not saying that somehow this is... Um, I don't know. I'm against it. What I'm saying is, is that what what I am against is 50 sets of laws that are insufficient as they are, that we have situations where there are people right now who are experiencing things in their sessions and it's, and it's unclear what they're supposed to do. And according to court precedent, they are potentially damned if they do and potentially damned if they don't. And that just doesn't make any sense to me. It's just, it's so silly that we have a profession where stop signs are to be followed and not followed at the same time, that you can get a ticket for following the stop sign and a ticket for not following the stop sign. That It's silly. And all we need to do is decide as a profession, here's the thing, and then just make it, make it so. And uh, then, then it would determine, you know, exactly what you're supposed to do. And we just don't have that. We don't have that with our suicide prevention protocols or our homicide prevention protocols. Uh, we're, we're just left to our own interpretation and whoever happens to be guiding us in that moment. And I mean, on some level, I guess I like it because it provides some freedom to particular situations. But th- on the other hand, it's like this entire episode is me talking about how this is nuanced and how we need to consider all these random things. Whereas if there was just a law, then there would be no discussion. I wouldn't need to be talking about this. I wouldn't need to be f- thinking about these four modes of, of legal consideration areas. <laughs> you know, just be like, well, you, the law says this and, you know, you figure out how to, how to do it. Um, and uh, that would be that. I don't know. It just, would be nice, but of course it'll never happen because um, that would require organization and it would require us in this area to actually be vocal about the notion of child pornography. You know, it would require us to go into court or engage in discourse around disclosures of child pornography without having a big freak out about it, which I can't imagine happening. Okay, in conclusion, what I will say is Remember that by default, we do not report crimes. 
We do not report crimes, even the horrible crimes. We do not report them in general. And that's a good thing. We want people to feel safe coming to us for help about those things so that we can prevent future crimes from happening. We want that to happen. In general, crimes are not reported. It seems that child pornography is in a gray zone. It seems that it's in a gray zone. But lots of other crimes, like, for example, rape. Someone says that they have raped somebody. An adult has said they have raped another adult. That's not reportable. In fact, you are forbidden from reporting that unless you believe that that person is at risk of, of raping others in the future. And, you know, there could be cases where that would be true. Uh, or if someone comes to you and says they were raped, um, that's, you know, it's not reportable. You, you, are, you can't break confidentiality to do that. If the victim says, I would like to report that to the police, let's do it, then you get consent and you do that, right? But you... And that can be a wonderful thing. But the point is, is you can't break confidentiality uh, just because someone tells you that they committed a crime uh, in the vast, vast majority of situations. Um, again, unless it has to do with child abuse or the abuse of, of, a, of a dependent adult, or it has to do with risk of significant harm to others, including themselves, or by court order. And if I am wrong about this, please let me know. Email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. If you, if you want to refute, given the emails I've gotten so far, if you want to refute what I'm saying, um, if you just want to give detail and you just want to be like, hey, I know this detail, blah, 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 that's great. I'd love that stuff. It just it helps me to better understand so I can pass on that understanding to everyone else. But if you want to refute this idea, uh, I want you to think very carefully before you email me about whether or not you know whether or not you're right or not. You know, if it's a gut feeling, then, you know, you can state it as such when you email me. You'd be like, so by the way, I have a gut feeling that you're wrong. And here's my gut feeling. I don't know if this is right, but this is my gut feeling. Great. But don't just email me and be like, well, you know, like, I, I think someone emailed me and said, that, well, you have to report it because the it was a disclosure from the roommate. And I'm like, but that's a collateral contact. You know, if, if um, you know, if, if I'm treating a man, a husband, and the wife calls me and says, this man robbed a bank last night, I, I still can't report that. Just because a collateral contact, just because an outside source gives me detail about a crime that's committed doesn't somehow negate my ethical and legal responsibility to confidentiality. Um, that the collateral contact is, is totally within their right to call the police themselves if they want, but, but I can't. So, um, so there seems to be this sort of lots of, there, there's just a lot of people looking, I think they're emotionally looking for loopholes to, to make the disclosure of, of use of child pornography legal and allowed or somehow like justified. And uh, well, and at the end, what I'll say is what I found out is it appears that you can make that report. Again, it appears that reports of child pornography use is in that third mode where you may report if you want to, but you don't have to, and you can't get sued either direction.
because it's in that in that gray zone again unless you're in california um so so if you have if you have information great um and if you have a gut feeling then state it as such but if you just have like things if you have a gut feeling an uninformed gut feeling and you would and and you want to tell me about it um don't email me because <laughs> it's uh, I have to, I have to read all these emails one it takes a lot of time and uh I you know I just think we should just slow down when we talk about this sort of stuff <laughs> uh but having said that I love reading all your emails I do truly and uh every morning just like Irvin Yellum I wake up I go to my computer with my coffee and I read your emails and I respond I've got some really interesting ones re- recently. One one person um, discovered the episodes that we had with Maete, in which there there was two episodes on a th- called "A Therapist Kisses a Client," and then uh, a third episode in which I think it's titled "A Therapist Loses His License" or something. <laughs> and these three episodes are about the case of Maete who. Uh, came forward publicly and wanted her name to be attached to this. In it was a case in which she was in therapy in California with a uh, doctoral level therapist who was uh, became very increasingly physical and sexual with the client, had kissed her and caressed her and held her and um, it, almost in the direction of dry humping her in the middle of of, of a session, and the client. Uh, Maite was not happy about this. She wanted the relationship because it felt therapeutic to have someone really care about her, but it also felt very triggering to her traumas and it felt very exploitative of her and it felt very gross to her. And, and uh, she ended up complaining about him and he went through the whole hearing and she did too. And a year or some, uh, later, he lost his license because of it. Thank God. And I, I actually was a um, consultant on that case and had access to his met, to his notes. And in those ep- those three episodes, I actually review. Um, I summarize his notes and talk about how insufficient they were and how it indicated neglect. Because he, um, anyway, it, it's a fascinating case, and a lot of people will find me on YouTube because of that. They'll, they will be abused by their client, by their therapist. They will be mistreated or they'll have, they'll be, they'll be raped by their therapist or they'll have a sexual relationship with their therapist or their therapist will express a sexual attraction to their clients. And they'll go on the internet and look for stuff around this and they'll come across my episodes and call me. And I've become this weird lightning rod for these stories. And, and, um, and one person reached out and said that she was going through a similar situation and, um, really commended Maite for publicly, um, coming forward and, uh, normalizing the, the victim experience. You know, it's, it's not, it's not the victim's fault. It, it's the therapist's fault and victims shouldn't be ashamed and shouldn't be closeted unless they want to be. And, deserve to have a voice and deserve justice and those therapists deserve shame and they deserve consequence and they deserve to be um, humiliated in my in my book you know so every once in a while um, I find myself saying phrases like 
there's a, there's a reason we have shame. There's a reason we developed the feeling of shame. And it's because, because shame is often, you know, framed as a bad thing. Uh, because often we're ashamed of things that we should not be ashamed of. You know, I, I don't look as thin as I did when I was 18. I'm ashamed of my body. Uh, society says that my genitalia should look a certain way. I'm ashamed of my genitalia. I got a C on a test. I'm ashamed of my school performance. You know, most of us, including myself, would say that is not fair. You should not be ashamed of that. Those are those are um, not only just kind of in the wrong direction, but completely in the opposite direction. Uh, you sh- you shouldn't be a, even slightly shamed or slightly guilty for having a few fat cells on your body or getting a C on a test when you tried your best, or even if you didn't try your best, who freaking cares? You you can you can blow off a test and get a C, and that's your choice. Who cares? It's not a big deal. But there are things in which people I think should be ashamed of, and things that's why we have the feeling of shame you know each each emotion i think has a purpose and i think shame has a purpose for example when someone loses control of their faculties and rapes another human being they should be ashamed of that when a therapist goes against all their training and all their ethical codes and all their um i don't know better judgment and engages in sexual exploitation of a client they should be ashamed of that they should absolutely be ashamed of that. They have harmed another human being. I, I'm not saying they should kill themselves over it, over it, but they should have a number of nights where they lie awake at night and stare into the darkness and wonder why they did that. Shame helps them to avoid doing it in the future. Uh, the fact that we make this sort of thing public and say this person has this person has to publicly announce that they have lost their license due to this behavior, that is public shaming which is a good thing in a situation like this. They should feel ashamed. They should feel guilty too. And they should resolve to not doing this in the future. That's the whole purpose of the justice system, right? Is, to, is, is, is not to punish people, but to uh, help people to not do in the future. And sometimes what that means is like, you know, if you want to avoid being publicly humiliated about this again, don't do it. Anyway, <laughs> so... I've been going back and forth with some people about that lately and, and shocking, you know, before I ventured into this podcast in this area, before I became the lightning rod for these stories, I, I had a general sense that these sorts of things are happening out there, but they're happening a lot more than we realize, a lot more than I realized. I mean, there are stories happening all the time. And I, for some reason, I think they're not very appealing to the news cycle for some reason. I think one, it has to do with therapy and people avoid that topic, but also, I think our society wants to believe that our medical professionals and our mental health professionals are good. You know, we, we want to believe that they're good. It's sort of the way that uh, our society was 20 years ago when it was hard for society to believe that a police officer could do something bad. It, it's just like you just want to believe that police are good. And, and then, it, then so everyone participates in this, in this collective um, suppression of stories in which police officers are doing bad things. And so we just, oh, no, that did, or like, you know, 40 years ago with politicians or 50 years ago with politicians, oh, all politicians are good. And then at a certain point, the pressure of the stories becomes so big, it explodes. And then, and then society suddenly realized, wait, we've been ignoring 
all these stories. And so they, they switch their entire point of view from politicians are all good to all politicians are corrupt. And the truth lies in the middle somewhere, right? It's like there was a time when we thought all priests, all Catholic priests were good and pure. And then all of a sudden, boom, a bunch of stories come out that there have been uh, abuses. And then now many people think of all Catholic priests as evil. And so when we, su- when we have a social pressure to suppress uh, stories, we run the risk of the pendulum swinging. And right now we're in a situation where at some point in the future, I'm predicting there will be an explosion and there will just be story after story of, ther- of people paying attention to stories. Because there are stories in the news, but they're just not being paid attention to. Stories of therapists, often male, who are sexually assaulting or crossing boundaries that are harming their clients. And there will, it'll be like a mini or a, some sort of Me Too movement against therapists who are abusing their power. And, uh, and then where will we be? Well, we'll be in a society where everyone will see us the way they see Catholic priests, which is, oh, they're all uh, exploitative and harmful to people. And so we could mitigate that possibility by actually paying attention to these stories so that they can slowly come out so that we can't be accused of ignoring these stories and suppressing them the way that police and Catholic priests and politicians can be viably accused of suppressing stories that make them look bad. I think we are participating in that, uh, in that suppression because we don't want to look bad. Um, we should be the one publicizing those those stories. We should be the one saying, hey, everyone, just so you know, we found another therapist who did a bad thing. And let us, let us tell you that we recognize this person did a bad thing, and we are going to do something about it, and we are going to increase our training, and we are going to try to create more gateways that people have to go through in order to demonstrate that they're not going to harm other people. Like, we need to do that. And if, if we don't, then, again, we run the risk of having a similar fate as Catholic priests. All right, well, that does it for that meandering end of an episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really do. 